0: We just care about figuring out how things work, but then once you have that knowledge it gives you extreme power, including the atomic bomb, but other things like looking at what's inside in your body using an MRI machine. My name is Andreas Hilfinger, I'm a physics professor in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at UTM. It gives us incredible power to build things to manipulate the world around us.
1: I did barbenheimer. I am Megan Sutherland, and I'm an associate professor of cinema and visual culture based in the Department of Visual Studies at UTM. So, Barbie in the Afternoon and Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter after that, and right. I'm sad to find Oppenheimer so much more interesting, even though I'm not really a big Christopher Nolan fan either. He didn't over Nolan it, but the emphasis on that film of how politics actually secretly happens when we think it's not, is so much more with it and au than Barbie's. It's not trapped in 70s film theory. It's all about the way all of these worlds have to be mixed together and you can't honor compartmentalization between the different scientific endeavors that were defining The modern era and its modes of production, and seeing the women in that film, just even in the background, I think that film does more to talk about gender than Barbie.
2: Blockbusters, bombs, and Barbie. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on the UTM academic community. I'm Carla DiMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members and students from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of UTM science labs, enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs on campus, and put a spotlight on our academic community at large. On the last season, We Are UTM, I introduced you to some of the people from our vibrant and ever-growing scholarly community, some of our newest members of UTM's leadership team, to students who are doing innovative things on the UTM campus, and I wanted to close off the season with something a bit lighter. So it's a film review with two brilliant UTM researchers, Professors Andreas Hilfinger and Megan Sutherland. And we are talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer and Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Both undoubtedly the films of the summer that had so much buzz around them, with the return to theatres in a big event way, whether you donned pink for Barbie, or a lab coat with a pack of smokes, the candy kind of course, tucked in the pocket to see Oppenheimer, or vice versa because scientists and Barbies come in all styles and we really don't need to dictate fashion choices to see either flick. And I actually need to sometimes remind myself that I have access to the smartest people around to discuss these kinds of things, in this case, pop culture. But how lucky am I that I can talk about Oppenheimer with a fide physicist from UTM's Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences, and Barbie and Oppenheimer with a legit film and television expert from the Department of Visual Studies on campus? So today, as a way to cap off summer and this season, we are going to the movies, and it's a double feature. On this episode of View to the U, Professor Andreas Hilfinger talks a bit about his work in chemical and physical sciences, but we also get to hear about the work of Professor Megan Sutherland from Visual Studies. Andreas is a physicist who focuses on studying complex systems, such as cellular processes, using theoretical physics approaches. He trained as a mathematician and theoretical physicist in the UK at Imperial College and Cambridge University before pursuing work as a graduate student at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. Prior to coming to UTM, Andreas was in the Department of Systems Biology as a research fellow at Harvard Medical School in Massachusetts. Andreas Hilfinger joined the faculty at UTM in 2017. And with Megan Sutherland, we also get a brief snapshot of her work in visual studies, but we take a deeper dive into the land of Barbie and Kendom, as well as ponder what value, if any, Barbie brings to the cinema and cinematic scholarship. Plus, how marketing and politics end up woven into these films. And this is definitely not a new concept, because it's been happening since the 1970s and likely before then too. Megan is an expert in film and media philosophy, the history of American TV and popular entertainment and political theory. She completed a BFA and an MA at New York University before going on to do her PhD at Northwestern University in Illinois. Prior to coming to UTM, Megan was an assistant professor of screen studies in the Department of English at Oklahoma State University And she is a core faculty member and co designer at the Reset Symposium on Media and Philosophy in the Ukraine. Megan Sutherland joined the faculty at UTM in 2011. Just a note these two interviews were conducted separately in August, as schedules allowed, and with time to see both films factored in. One interview took place in person while the other was over Zoom, so please excuse any inconsistencies with the audio.
0: So we're trying to understand how life works on the level of single cells. So cells make decisions through the interactions of individual molecules that they are talking to each other. And we study the models of these interactions. And they look a little bit like the kind of engineering diagrams we draw of electrical circuits. But it's a little bit misleading because we didn't understand these biological circuits nearly as well as we understand electrical circuits. So what we do is entirely theoretical. We study these models, and we try to figure out how we can possibly compare these models against the experimental data and learn something about the parts that we don't already know about these circuits, given the fact that they're so hugely underdetermined. It turns into a very difficult problem. So we do the theory, but we work a lot with people who do the experiments on single cells.
2: Interesting. Just curious how you got into this line of research in the first place.
0: Oh, well, it was an accident. Oh. <laughs> like so many things. I was going to do a PhD in cosmology. And at the time, I kind of got cold feet about the prospect of working on problems where during my own lifetime, I will not be able to figure out whether I'd made a contribution or not, because it's so difficult to come up with experimental tests. Yeah. And I didn't want to just theorize about why the universe looks the way it does. And it just happened where I was a student that somebody came in as a visiting professor to give talks about biophysics. And in particular, they talked about how cells move how they move forward, and how does it actually work? How does a cell know where the front is, and how does it find, and then how does it get there? Because we have brains, we have eyes, we can move around, but the cells don't have any of that stuff. And it suddenly dawned on me that as a physicist, there are lots and lots of other problems that I never saw as an undergraduate that are intellectually very interesting and at the same time very important and impactful because how cells move is important for wound healing. Say, like, you cut yourself, the cells that are moving around, they have to find the wound. And so I changed my mind and went to do a PhD in biological physics instead.
2: And so then this ties in, though, nicely with what we're here to speak about today. You recently saw the film Oppenheimer, and I want to know what your overall impressions of the film were I know it's not so much about the science, but because you just said about cosmology and the stars, I did really like those shots where when they were talking about physics, they would show the stars or they would show some really interesting graphic, which I think is just speaking to capturing your imagination, which it sounds like physics did for you. But let's talk about Oppenheimer. (laughs) What did you think?
0: I loved the movie. I really enjoyed it. And I think there was a real buzz in the cinema and I was really impressed by how many people care about this story. But I 100% agree with you. The Thinking about the stars and the universe or the smallest things and the bomb and all those things are hugely fascinating. It's difficult not to be excited about that. The power that comes with figuring out how the universe works. And a lot of it is so mysterious, we have no idea. And why is it the way that it is? We don't know. But figuring out tiny little bits about it, and then being able to manipulate it in a certain way is fascinating, which is what got me into physics.
2: Yeah, I know that it's not so much a film about science, but for what they portrayed about science, did you feel they got it right? Or was there something that you wish that they would have included in this film?
0: Yes, as far as I could tell, there weren't any incorrect statements about physics. There probably were some, but ultimately the film really isn't about physics. It's about the story of one man's life, and that's something we can also relate to. I felt like the physics that was described, it's like, if you ask most of the people at the end of the movie to draw you a diagram how a atomic bomb actually worked, I think it's fair to say that the majority of people wouldn't be able to do that. Because it wasn't the theme of the movie. It wasn't the documentary that tried to explain, like, well, how do you figure out the problem of blowing up a bunch of uranium or plutonium, which is what the Manhattan Project was all about. We didn't really learn about this. I mean, yes, they did explain it, but we didn't need to know this. And the story of Oppenheimer was very fascinating and exciting to follow. So I, I very much enjoyed it from that perspective. The one thought that I had as someone who's practicing scientist is that science Is a lot more boring and not as fast and not as exciting as it is portrayed in the movie.
2: Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, that it just felt like things happened at a much faster pace than I would imagine that some of these science experiments actually are carried out.
0: Yeah, it took them years to figure out these things. And scientists are essentially always stuck. We're always stuck because once you figure something out then it's not doing new research anymore. Then it's stuff that you've figured out. So basically, you are constantly trying to figure something out that you don't understand. And so when you don't understand something, it's very difficult to make progress. So it's a constant stabbing in the dark. And it's very frustrating, and it's very tedious. And for my graduate students, I always tell them that it's a very difficult transition when you start doing research because it's so frustrating. Like, all your ideas are essentially not going to work. And every now and then, there's something where you make a tiny little bit of progress. Now, making a movie about signs like this would be an incredibly dull movie. (laughs) So nobody wants to see that, yeah. And so I'm not criticizing the movie for not showing that, but as a practitioner, I felt like it's not like that. Yes, we do look like the scientists in the movie. Like we stand around around the blackboard and discuss, and I know that we are very happy to take our movable blackboard outside to the courtyard. And so people always comment on that, or they take pictures and they're like, oh, it's like in the movies. And it's true, it looks like in the movies. But the reality is very, very different. The things that we talk about are very, very dumb. Because we're talking about things that we don't understand. So it's all like, why does this go up and not down? Oh, is it because somebody held the paper upside down? Or it's like, oh, the minus sign in the calculation is wrong? Or maybe there's something big wrong with a the theory. Or maybe someone just made a mistake in the experiment. Maybe it's a measurement error. That's the constant confusion and debate in every time we stand around the blackboard. But to the outside world, it just looks like, oh, wow, it's lots of complicated math.
2: Yeah. And you're making me think when I first started working in the research office, someone that I was speaking with about their grants, I think I said to them about getting the answers to their questions. And they said, really, that's not the satisfying part about doing research. It's about asking the right questions. And also, once you get the answer to the one question, just to your point, leading you to the next part of that question or the next path that's part of that research.
0: Yes, there's never a time where you can sit on the success, essentially. When you've understood something, then you immediately will not understand the next part. Mm -hmm. Every time you've answered a question, there's immediately three new questions. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like the chain reaction in the movie. (laughs) So it never ends. There's never a moment where you feel comfortable and like, I've understood everything.
2: Right. And I think that also then does bring us to a point that we were speaking about this film in that ultimately he achieves his goal of creating this weapon of mass destruction and they call him the father of the atomic bomb, which they very much celebrate in the film because he achieved what he set out to do, but it really doesn't feel like it should be something that's celebrated given the outcome.
0: Yeah, that's a very difficult the moment, of course. Mm -hmm. But I feel like as humans, you can only motivate yourself by celebrating the end point. And it's like, okay, this is what I look forward to. And when I get there, we're going to celebrate. You need that to motivate yourself to go through those periods of hardship and frustration.
2: And I think something that resonated exactly what you're saying, some of the points you can just understand as a human being, but I had to make a note about this. I really liked the fact that It opens with the quote that said, Prometheus stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. For this, he was chained to a rock and tortured for eternity. And I don't want to give away any spoilers, but that's very much it bookends the film because there's something he says at the end that very much ties back to that opening quote that he essentially changed the world with his discovery. And I just feel like I think everyone could try to envision themselves in that position where you have this kind of moral tension going on with, I want to do this for my career and for my science, but you're also creating something that you have to live with for the rest of your life.
0: Yes, I guess he was put in charge to deliver this and decided that that's okay and it's contributing towards the greater good. And of course, lots of debate has been had over the last, uh, however many decades is it now, it's like eight decades, I guess. So people have talked about this for a long, hard time, so, and I don't think the movie addressed it too much, but like, was it overall good or bad? How would you have decided this issue? I don't think it went too much into this territory. It was more about the, how did Oppenheimer actually live his life? I felt like it didn't ask too much of the audience to put yourself in that position, like what would you have done? Yeah. Which is a very difficult question. I think a lot of people were also convinced by the actual danger of, the, of Nazi Germany and the physicists' understanding that if this is a possibility, then we have to get there first. And a great number of famous physicists got involved in the project, I think, very reluctantly, but after some thought decided like yeah, we need to do this. It's one of the most important discoveries of physics. And the Manhattan Project is a very famous story. So to physicists, it's not very new, but it was certainly an entertaining three hours to watch the story told. Although only half of it is really about the Manhattan Project. The other half is about what happened after the Manhattan Project. So no spoilers there, um, how it ends. But I guess that that was the two parts of the movie that they're trying to portray.
2: The parts where they incorporated Albert Einstein, was that accurate? Did he consult him about some of their formulas?
0: I'm not sure he was consulted during the project, the no. way that I think they asked him about the ignition of the atmosphere. Yes. I suspect that didn't happen, but I have no idea. I suspect that was in the movie to just signify this was a big deal. Like, we actually discussed this. Let's yes. go to the, talk to the most famous physicist there is. But his involvement in getting the whole thing started, that is certainly accurate. Mm-hmm. He signed the letter to the president on behalf of Leo Zillard, who was the first person to really envision that there can be a chain reaction and we can have nuclear energy and nuclear bombs. And he got Albert Einstein because he was so famous to write a letter to the president saying that if the Germans get this, this is going to be a problem. So maybe you should talk to a bunch of physicists directly as the president and try to get this going and see what we can do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's a very, very important question of arms control. And international collaboration when it comes to nuclear energy and atomic weapons, which is one of the great things that came out from a lot of physicists who were involved in this, including Oppenheimer. He was against building bigger bombs and he said, look, now that we have this, we just need to collaborate internationally to make sure that we don't all get the bomb. And so it's heavily regulated and it's a big engineering problem. So the physics is fairly straightforward. But just to purify the uranium, for example, is a big engineering problem. And you need the centrifuges and you have people called the International Atomic Energy Agency. And they do control and you go around and check if you have a nuclear reactor that you're not using it to make plutonium for weapons. And so that's we've been able to sort of keep it somewhat under control with the exception of India and Pakistan who had the most recent additions to the nuclear powers.
2: Yeah. And there was a couple of things that I was also struck by in the film. And one of them, I don't know if you can relate to this at all, but the way they portrayed him as a student, he ended up becoming much more celebrated and into theoretical because he was kind of clumsy in the lab. And I don't know how much truth there is to that portrayal. I did read it on Wikipedia, so I don't know how accurate that is, but I found that to be interesting. And they do also confirm he was a real chain smoker. And so I just thought there was so much smoke in this movie, not just from him constantly, every scene he's got a cigarette in his mouth and or in his hands, um, but then the smoke from the bomb. So I was kind of struck by the portrayal of smoke kind of all around in the movie. Yeah,
0: it doesn't strike me as unrealistic. And I don't know how Oppenheimer fared in the lab, but it's also not unrealistic that he didn't do well in the lab, wasn't interested in it, and was more about thinking about the equations, yeah.
2: I guess the last thing, what struck me, was that divide between the scientists and the administration and the, the politicians, that they were very much at odds. And I think at one point, someone does say to Strauss, that you're part of the administration... And the scientists don't really value the things that you say as an administrator. And because I've seen some of that happen here. The, you know, sometimes you're not exactly speaking the same language.
0: Yes. Certainly, if you've ever seen scientists speak to non-scientists, you will seen that uh, we're out of our depths when it comes to playing political games or making ourselves understood. And I think the same happened with Oppenheimer here. They treated him as like, well, you don't know how to play these political games. Mm-hmm. We're going to crush you. You helped us do something, you were good at this, but now you're out of your depth. Politics is not for you. And uh, it's true, it's like we're not good at playing the political game. Mm -hmm. But that's what often what is necessary to influence public opinion and funnel taxpayers' money in one direction or another one. And so I hope that the scientific community, I think we're getting a little bit better at trying to explain what we do and why it is important to people who are not directly involved with our work. Because there's a very clear feedback. It's like, well, we are getting paid with taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. That's where the money comes from. Yeah. We don't build anything that we sell. This is basic research. So we just get paid to figure out how stuff works. Mm-hmm. And. It's a very good investment, but it's a very long-term investment. And only societies can make that sort of investment. A company doesn't care about what's going to happen in 45 years. But for a society, that's still a worthwhile payoff to say, like, okay, so we're going to put a million dollars into this now because in 50 years, maybe it's going to be worth $100 billion. Mm -hmm. And so it is true that we have an obligation to make that case. And I hope we're getting a little bit better at trying to explain our research and why it matters.
2: Yeah. And I also liked, because I'm just thinking about you as a scientist and you usually work in collaboration. And I think the way that this film portrayed all the work that was done in Los Alamos, they essentially built a little city to accommodate all the people working on the project and have that space to do their experiments. But it was really impressive to me to just think about, well, the resources, because they do mention how much money they spent. I think Matt Damon said something like $2 billion. Yes, which
0: is like $30 billion in today's money or something like that which sounds a lot, but it is not. If you think about changing the course of humanity or what is important for a country who is at war. I don't know what the total cost of the Afghanistan war is of the order of a trillion dollars or something like that. So that is actually, it's a fairly small commitment in terms of money. But I think what it highlights is creating a space for a whole bunch of scientists to work together and communicate is extremely productive. And if you curb that sort of interaction, you curb science a lot. And I think the movie makes an argument in that direction a little bit. The Germans didn't get there because they didn't have an open scientific communication. They didn't have an active scientific community because everyone with any Jewish connections had to leave the country. They had to fear for their lives. And the oppression from the regime was such that everyone had to focus on other things. Whereas to give scientists the opportunity to talk to each other and try to just think about the problem, is what you need for real scientific progress. So I'm not sure whether the movie overstated that case, but it's certainly a hypothesis that many people have.
2: No, and I think that they do just because there are a lot of scenes where, like you say, it moves a lot slower in reality. But they do have lots of scenes where everybody is, like you mentioned before, talking about splitting the atom. And that they just have that opportunity to be in a classroom or a lab together where they can bounce these ideas and refute each other's ideas but add something new to the mix. I think they did capture that.
0: But they don't have to worry about getting arrested tonight because they said the wrong thing. Yeah. Although they did have to worry about getting arrested because they were suspected as spies, but uh, I guess that was one of the conflicts in the movie.
2: Totally. And so is there anything else that you wanted to mention about the film?
0: No, I'm just so excited that so many other people are excited about this. So yeah. I'm teaching first year physics. So I'm hoping that maybe we'll see a bigger class this year because of all that excitement and buzz that this movie has generated. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I know the theater I went to was just packed.
0: It's incredible. Yeah. It's still going on. And people are still going to watch this movie. In, yeah. In and not numbers. just
2: waiting for it to come out on streaming services, but I got one of the last seats. It's
0: incredible. I feel like it's the first post-pandemic event in the cinema i don't know. maybe i'm just being slow maybe i missed a lot of them i don't know what what is your impression
2: well the two films everyone's talking about barbie and oppenheimer and i feel like people are getting dressed up to go to the barbie movie people are coming out in droves to oppenheimer i feel like you're probably onto something
0: i was like everyone wants to go to the cinema and make it an event and uh, we saw certainly more people dressed up for barbie than for oppenheimer in the (laughs) cinema
2: This leads me to my last question just because this is meant to be kind of a more summertime light themed podcast even though we've been talking about heavy subjects. Is there anything else that you've been sort of reading or watching or listening to or anything over the summer that you've really been enjoying?
0: Yes so I listen to a lot of podcasts. One of my favorite Podcast at the moment is the opinionated history of mathematics.
2: I haven't heard of this one, which is
0: a very entertaining polemic against the contributions of Galileo to science. Oh wow! And there are hundred episodes or something. It's some incredible, but they're all very entertaining, but also thoughtful. It's very thought provoking. I recently came across this. It's like five years old or so. I don't know, but and it's I love like a listening series. to it. Yes, it's very funny and very entertaining.
2: Yeah, and I like it when people make the science ones yep. funny and entertaining because yes. sometimes that's not easy to do. Yes, yes. Well, and like the one. I mentioned this to you before we started recording but science versus I think is another one that they always have scientists on their show but they'll take it like a theme they did talk about Oppenheimer or they might talk about magic mushrooms or you know it could be any kind of science related thing and they treat it very much like a paper because at the end they've got citations they'll say how many citations they have and they'll refer you to their show notes for the citations but they make it fun they make it light you know there's always kind of some funny puns included and they make it so that you understand the science behind some of the hype that you hear about yes and why is it called science versus thank you so much for your time today andreas thank you
0: you. everyone wants to go to the cinema and make it an event and uh, what i want to know is how good is barbie
2: well coming up we have a chat for that a deep dive into the barbie land extravaganza but also Megan Sutherland's take on what this movie is representing when it comes to politics, capitalism, feminism, and identity.
1: I teach classes on television and cinema and visual culture and a lot of these kinds of political questions that intersect with them.
2: I kind of left the theater feeling like I'm not sure how I feel about this So now I've had like more time to reflect, but one of my friends pointed out, and I think it's so true that like we are not necessarily the intended audience for Barbie. So just as an example, I went to see it with my two teenage daughters, Mm -hmm. they loved it. They loved all the dance numbers. They always used to tease me about, oh, mom, you're such a feminist. (laughs) But now they are feminist. So they liked a lot of the messages that were in there. But I think that this movie was maybe intended more for the millennial and the Gen Z crowd.
1: It seems to me the audience is exactly what you're describing. And I actually think that's the most interesting thing about the film Mm -hmm. is its attempt to stage some kind of intergenerational conversation around Barbie. Yes. I think that's the the aspect of the movie that I find most interesting and helpful. We're going to talk about it as a film that is supposed to be a feminist film. My beef with the film has less to do with Barbie per se. I played with Barbies when I was a kid, and I think the weird Barbie thing is real, it Any really film, is film that has kate mckinnon in it a but kate mckinnon doing a 180 split against the wall all the time it's yes the film i want to see you know, know. So.
2: it's so true because those were the parts i was most drawn to is like the subversive like i liked kate mckinnon's weird barbie and i liked alan <laughs> it's just like yeah. i
1: don't know that those were supposed to be our two favorites they were the two most appealing characters in the film for sure So I don't know. It's interesting. What I've heard about this film is I don't know personally anybody who hasn't seen the film with their daughter. (laughs) Um, And they all have the same kind of opinion. They have a generally positive feeling about it, which I can completely appreciate and understand. I'm actually not here to attack that, because I think one of the things that, in my view, needs to happen most amongst women, if we're going to talk about making steps and moving forward in feminism. I mean, apart from moving beyond the kind of classical white feminism and the sort of racial divisions that have structured feminism historically and really severed it from other kinds of struggles, apart from addressing that, which is, I think, probably the biggest task ahead, is to build a real kind of solidarity and a truly more expansive definition of feminism. And I think that this film... Tries to do that, but in ways that kind of bother me, (laughs) in ways that lend themselves most of all to neoliberal discourses of politics. And by that, I mean, like they conflate consumption and consumer choice and freedom and voting with your wallet. And demographic research, all the demographic research that happens now through media and our use of media, these digital trails about all of our associations and our political orientations. I mean, one of the major developments in politics of the last 20 years has been this intense and just really intricate, very increasingly sophisticated reliance on consumer demographic data to structure political modes of address that really target niche audiences with a bunch of different messages instead of speaking to everybody and really kind of assuming political orientations and divisions based on identity and consumer identity above all, but because all of this data comes from our consumption of media. Politics really now, I think, is increasingly consistent. The way that people understand what the social is comes out of audience research, and that's really one of the things that I think about most. So it It takes me on down a rabbit hole of sorts, because that's what I think is really the most pressing issue in all kinds of political struggle now for equality, equity, and diversity and all these things in meaningful terms, more than just an acronym, but actually doing it. Getting outside the boxes by which the social is understood to fit together and not fit together and be divided, and having everybody get a personalized message. To me, these are at the roots of the institutional erosion of democracy and its usurpation by really sort of spectator-heavy discourse of what the social is and what it needs and wants and really geared towards entertainment. I don't like to be this kind of old-fashioned person, but it's been a long, long process. It's been going on since the 19th century. And so that's what I'm really interested in. And I think that this film, insofar as it is ultimately concerned with Mattel properties and promoting Barbie remains fixed in a kind of understanding of the social and of creating diverse new connections among women and inclusivity that can only be articulated in terms of the marketplace for Barbies. It's like, oh, we have now, Barbie's world is much more multiracial than Barbie's world has traditionally been. And we know that's something Mattel has worked on. It's been a major point of criticism, the whiteness of Barbie, the kind of stereotypical body, all of it. And the film really, it has really cool people and it has all these great Latina actresses and Issa Rae as the president. That's a really nice idea. I would love to have Issa Rae be my (laughs) president. You know, it has America Ferreira and her daughter. So I think staging that intergenerational conversation is one of the ways that the film contributes productively to the kind of expanding the understanding of what we talk about and who's talking when we talk about feminism. And I think that intergenerational sympathy is what has been missing a lot in recent years in forming different solidarities and understanding what our goals are. But I think that the film really is addressing that very much in times like, we just need more races of Barbies and we need to make people feel more included.
2: The film does point to when they introduce Midge and like because she was pregnant they kind of put her off to the side because it's like they don't want to show that but also exactly what you say about the mother-daughter intergenerational. I felt like it only just scratched the surface though like even though I think that they were trying to get that dialogue going but you didn't really find out how the mother and daughter connected and it missed something.
1: I agree completely. It's like a deus machina. It just happens, right? Suddenly the daughter is not completely a teenager who is like, mom. you know? Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> Barbie's poisoned the world. And you still work for Mattel. That just magically disappears when she goes to Barbie land, the daughter, and she suddenly starts acting like a big rah-rah booster. Mm-hmm. Not like a teenager at all. And not like what we need young women to be acting like today, And I think we can't underestimate the value of that voice of critique. It's so necessary, it has pushed us forward to have these young women who are like, what the hell? I think there can be, at times, undue hostility towards the older generations and this idea that you just simply allowed these things to continue happening. And I think that our mother's generations, you know, my mother was born in 1945, and I think all the time about what a mind trip that must have been that moment to really come of age in the 1960s, to be involved in all of this stuff, you know, college in these years, while all of these kind of cultural and social revolutions of sorts are happening in the U.S. around gender and race... And to kind of be told suddenly that you can do anything and then to continue hitting up against the institutional barriers and the sexism and getting harassed and getting raped and having nobody listen to you and not being able to get a job unless you do this. And so I think that the territory that that generation of women won, whatever they've had to put up with and, and amongst their own husbands mm-hmm. was something really real that needs to be reckoned with as something different categorically than what women are necessarily dealing with today. And I think we need to have sympathy for for each other and talk, which you're right, is exactly what doesn't happen in that film. It's just like, yes. oh, that's solved. You know, suddenly moms and daughters see totally eye to eye on all of this.
2: And even to your point about Mattel and the stake that they had in this, I think that they do poke fun at that also in the film, because there's that ending scene where Gloria, the mom says something along the lines of, you know, we should have a Barbie like this, this, this. And he's like, oh, no, that won't sell. And then the other guy is like, oh, actually, that will. (laughs) Okay, then we'll we'll introduce the ordinary
1: Barbie. (laughs) Absolutely. The film 100% boils down to oh, as long as it sells, like we'll still get progress. Like this is the ultimate, you know, I don't like easy terms to, oh, it's neoliberalism. It's bad. Most people don't even know what that word means when they use it. But the conflation of economic choice with democracy and a kind of erosion, a direct attack on government institutions and the idea of governments at all Getting in the way of freedom and stuff and the freedom of the marketplace in particular is what drives neoliberalism in a nutshell. And this need to make everything economically productive, to privilege this goal above everything in every domain. And I think this film really is restricted by the corporate umbrella and the fundamental function. Don't have to be invested in kind of Adorno's critique of the culture industry in order to see that it really puts a ceiling on what this film can do. And it really seems pretty satisfied with that ceiling, actually. Like, oh, as long as that makes money, we can have inclusive Barbies and that's better and that's fine and everybody wins. I think that also you're right, that somehow its mode of address has been, and I think this also reflects what I'm most uncomfortable with about it. Let's leave aside Barbie and the kind of stereotypes and all of that. That's complicated. And we've got all these waves of feminism that have allowed us to think about whether you can embrace these kinds of things and still be a feminist. I think you can the right way. But when you're doing it under the banner of promoting a solution that amounts to, oh, we'll just get more Barbies. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> <I know.
2: laughs> in more races and
1: Orientations.
2: I want to say, though, to your point about the economic implications, I found it so interesting because I only just heard the stat yesterday. But they spent one hundred and forty five million making the movie and they spent one hundred and fifty million on marketing. Yeah. So this ends up being a big commercial because now they said Mattel sales are up thirty three percent. Yeah,
1: that is yeah. why they're doing it. So this is also the part of it. It's like when I see all the reviews. You know, there's been a thousand puff pieces on Greta Gerwig making art in the New York Times. And so I guess I get kind of annoyed that it's got this kind of quality discourse and it's explicit to everybody. Everybody who talks about it in kind of journalistic discourse is aware that Greta Gerwig was brought in to give a kind of feminist stamp to this problematic property that they want to maximize and monetize in new ways with new audiences, and that she is there to provide that feminist stamp. So I sort of resent that she did a little bit and that it celebrated. as like, oh, she was so invested in making art. And it's like no different to me than when Luca Guadagnino makes a Louis Vuitton commercial. Like those are his least interesting films. They're lush and opulent, beautiful pieces. And yes, the clothes are gorgeous and the sets are, but they're always his least interesting pieces. You know, I like Guadagnino. You know, in a lot of instances, I think his work is interesting, but it gets wrapped up in this. And with this, too, it is a commercial. And people used to be bothered by that. There's a ton of good TV scholarship on the pedocratic mode of address of TV and how worked up people were in the 80s when children's TV networks like Nickelodeon were coming into prominence. And people were advertising toys and candies to kids in this really targeted way. So they're this captive audience of impulsive (laughs) consumers. And that was a huge political controversy. And people used to think it was problematic. And there were all these laws and regulations. And now we have the New York Times celebrating. They're like, oh, yeah, we know it's really a commercial for Barbie. And at the end of the day, this is what Mattel's doing. And they're using this female director who's respected to make this a respected film and product and put a stamp of quality on it she's there for our millennials and our gen z and xers and y's and whatever i really struggled to come up with a different upshot from this film like a different takeaway or message other than like you know what we can all just enjoy barbie it's fine everything is fine is what I got from this film. And it's kind of funny because, for example, that last scene where she goes to the gynecologist, I mean, I like it as a gesture. In theory, I think it's great. Like, oh, she's got an actual vagina now. Wonderful. She's entering the world. She's becoming a woman. But she just goes to the gynecologist and that's it. And as we know, the gynecologist office is a total battleground right now. And to me, that scene means nothing. The way that you can make that scene matter to me, satisfy me just a little bit, just not feel insulting. If she goes into the gynecologist's office and then there's a reverse shot and this old white man steps out with like a cross around his neck (laughs) and he's like all right, little lady. (laughs) Me, Or if she goes to the gynecologist, the gynecologist that I had to see when I lived in rural Oklahoma for six and a half years, and she was the only female gynecologist in town. So I went there and in that office waiting room was a painting hanging on the wall of an old white man, a frontal rendering sitting at his desk. I think he was reading a medical book had his finger on the lines that he's reading and like a prescription pad next to him. And just, you know, like a 75-year-old white man with his finger on the line from the medical book. And then Jesus is looming behind him with his hand on his shoulder and his other finger on a line in the Bible. Oh and we're talking party Jesus, like long hair, yeah. mullet Jesus, fantastic. <laughs> and that's what I dealt with. And I quit going to any gynecologist when that female gynecologist left town. And I just saw the nurse practitioner at my general doctor until I left. But I mean, these are the kinds of realities that women are facing right now. So the other kind of big beef I had with the film, and again, it goes back to this problem of its politics or like what kind of concept of politics it would even have that would make this a meaningful feminist film. I think it really boils down to how much this film feels trapped in 70s film theory. I know that you studied cinema, Carla, so I know you know you're Laura Mulvey. And this incredible book that she wrote And all of the great work that she did in the 1970s and 80s and visual and other pleasures and stuff like that, where she talks about the women characters in films as to be looked atness, just objectified in the narrative, while the male agents of the narrative move the narrative and move the action forward and are the subjects of the film, whereas the women are the objects and they kind of stop the motion of the story to be looked at and their essences to be looked at. This is a kind of quintessential feminist critique, a great work of feminist film theory that I think still remains relevant in a lot of yeah. ways. But at the same time, there's even a few lines in here that make me feel like Gerwig was really reading her Mulvey And she's like, I'm a subject now. I'm not just oh. an object. I'm the subject. And that is what we see. That is what this film consists of. But at the same time, it uses this language in a way that makes me feel like it's pretty attentive to that. And it even states actually an argument of another famous essay that Laura Mulvey wrote on melodrama. This is, I really like this essay. It's one of my favorites of hers. Mm -hmm. And she's writing about the politics of melodrama. Mm -hmm. And she says that ideological contradiction is the narrative mainspring. It's not like an accident. The contradictions of dominant ideology are the subject of melodramas and people dealing with these wrenching situations. And so there's a long history of really great feminist film theory on melodrama and how that can work with women audiences. Is it masochistic to watch these films? And Mulvey's essay on Douglas Sirk, who was a great maker of melodramas, All That Heaven Allows, and Written on the Wind, and all these amazing just lush, kind of opulent, gorgeous melodramas with a real critique of dominant social values in many cases. And she is trying to critique and kind of wonder about the possibilities of this mode of address. And she articulates in that essay an idea that is reproduced in the film by one of the characters when their strategy to beat the Kens is to create infighting amongst the men and distract them from voting. I don't know if this really seems like the coolest solution to today's problems. It is like, let's get our political initiatives carried out by suppressing the vote of those that just—it's yes. you know, a little familiar. It kind of creeps me out a little bit. I know. That's the best solution this film can right. imagine. Is don't let that guys vote. Yeah, that is what is happening to women right now. That's literally what's happening to women: is that their votes are not being counted, they're being yeah. disqualified systematically, and the strategy of right-wing conservative men who want to take away women's rights is to basically make it impossible for their votes to matter. And so it hurts a little bit, honestly.
2: Yeah. We're going to talk film theory. The one thing, I don't know, even know if it's a positive, but one of the classes I remember taking was very much about oh, tourism. And uh-huh. I thought that Greta Gerwig is at at least staying consistent if you're looking at her oeuvre or her body of work, that she's staying true to themes that she's explored in the past. Because I know, you know, I did see Ladybird and I saw little women, and of course, it's been done many times. But if I think about how Ken factored into Barbie and that really Barbie wasn't interested in Ken, I think the same case could be made for Ladybird. She had these guys in her life that, that wasn't really the focus for her. I felt that her relationships with her female friends and her mom Mom were what took center stage. The guys were kind of on the periphery. Mm-hmm. And I think the same with Barbie. Ken was just kind of there and she wasn't really interested in engaging in any kind of relationship with him. She had her girls nights and her, her yeah. friends.
1: And Keep little- in mind that she doesn't have any genitals too. So this is so also true have any interest in cat <laughs> Or anyone. Like she right. doesn't damn about sex because she yes. has no know. And so I agree with you. I mean, I think Lady Bird is fine. I think that there's a slightly checker history for Gerwig in terms of the whiteness of her imaginary, but that's her experience. I mean, that's fine, but like Little Women is kind of an urtext of white feminism that I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with Being the flagship feminist product now, since it is predicated on precisely the era of feminism that made it impossible to move forward in a more expansive understanding of what the struggle was and who was part of it. And like, you can be included too. It's okay to be a young Latina girl and like Barbie. And you can just draw on her with marker. I mean, that's what we did, but we didn't do that because that was how it should be. We were just- (laughs) Cutting off the hair. (laughs) (laughs) My weird Barbie had a crown. So- bolted oh. into her head and we cut I all, that, all her hair off and she had this Annie Lennox <laughs> crew cut with this crown like violently <laughs> attached to her head and actually it really worked. But the film also turns exactly to this very identitarian, individualistic language of consumption that is, again, reflective of what I'm talking about in its embrace of this. It's kind of constrained by the bubble of Mattel and the explicitly merchandise-oriented goals of a film like this. It does not exist yeah. for any other reason and you're enough everything has to be customized it's actually it's not enough to just be you that is the kind of triumphant consumerist individualism of today and i think it does seep into politics at our expense of forming different collectivities and like re-juggling who can be in agreement about things or whose problem something is when we get locked in our demographic types and this is who i am i think it's important to have those causes i'm not suggesting we expunge Gender or racial identity or ethnic identity or all those differences out of politics at all, or even the discourses of what we want. But I think focusing on demands and addressing things at the level of demands is like the key condition of politics. Instead of just being like, "Well, here's who I am, and that's enough." But it's not enough to be enough in truth, and enough is not a thing. (laughs) Just being who you are is all that you need to be positive and progressive. I just think a limit point that is part of that kind of consumerist discourse. And to return to the film theory thing, it reproduces as a lecture of strategy where America for is like, well, here's what we'll do. If we just talk about the contradictions of being woman and what it's like, and we can just share those experiences people will be not brainwashed anymore. And the fact that there are literally two worlds in Barbie, and one of them is this idealized world, and one of them is the real world, is so striking to me because it really also reflects the idea that there's this ideological veil, and if we just pierce through it and show the means of production, or Ruth Handler was this woman who made Barbie and This Is Why, this opening scene with the 2001 reference. It's like really arty, but actually, that was about the invention of technology being poisonous. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that this film has enough of a, an understanding of gender as a technology, which is, of course, something it has been written about at length. And so what Mulvey notices, and what she goes on to say in that essay that is not included in America, Ferrera's speech about You have to be perfect, but you can't be scary. You have to be all of these different incompatible things. And she says, oh, the contradictions, this contains the seeds of its own ruin. It's straight out of this really classical ideological critique model, critiques of capitalism and its contradiction, or critiques of sexism and patriarchy and their contradictions. And so this film feels really trapped in Mm. a completely antiquated model of ideological critique When in fact, what's happening is there's a demographic engineering of political coalitions right now that can be quite toxic. For Mulvey, what the endpoint of the problem of melodrama was is she raises the possibility that actually these melodramas, there might be an opening for new solidarities among feminists and women recognizing and seeing these contradictions of patriarchy play out on screen. And that's what she hopes. But she says this might also function like an ideological exhaust valve that keeps a lid on everything, keeps the pressure down. We can all talk about these things, but we don't really do anything about them. And now we feel like that critique is obvious. The performances are good. I like Margot Robbie. She can make anyone sympathetic and give them nuance. I think she's great. Mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling was funny. Everybody was good in the film, but I find it's that era of the 1970s that I continue referring back to, that it's trapped in theoretically, exalting in the powers of the consumer to talk back to dominant culture and reform it by fan appropriation and things like this. It's not a mistake, maybe, that the 70s was also the moment when marketers started needing to look for expanded audiences, and they were getting this demographic information about the audience for the first time and treating it as politically useful. And so that's when black exploitation was invented as a genre to... Realize, like, oh, we haven't been exploiting the market of Black audiences. We now Mm -hmm. need to make major films for Black audiences because we want that money. There's always a kind of complex history with marketing. And Mm -hmm. so now we look at the film and we're like, haha, it's for Mattel and it's really a commercial. And yeah, Greta Gerwig was bought on to give it this seal of feminist art house, Boda Fides. And she did that. But we don't expect anything more anymore. Mm -hmm. She did a really nice commercial that now has the imprimatur of feminism on it,
2: It's true. And even when you reference Douglas Sirk, I think that is the big difference though between say this film and one of his films is just that there was the melodrama and there was all the beauty of his films, but there were the cracks that weren't so obvious. And with this, it's so over the top. They just come out and say it. They tell rather than show.
1: Yes, it is about that there's a tear in reality. Mm -hmm. This all comes from the language of ideological critique. You show the tear in reality. But I also was so deflated by by the fact that the happy ending what is the upshot that's positive that happens here Living in the real world is the horizon so, I can imagine. I know.
2: Yeah. Well, I know. And what I also thought, obviously there was a lot of reference to Busby Berkeley and Zigfield Follies, like all of those sort of old Hollywood the big numbers, but I also couldn't help but think about Wizard of Oz just because yeah. again, it's this kind of adventure going to this other alternate universe. They each get a chance to experience it because Barbie goes to the real world and Gloria and Sasha go to Barbie land or Kendom, whatever it ends up being called but you know there's that kind of adventure and wanting to go back home but I felt the same way this is what she's chosen
1: (laughs) and this is radical to like be living in this completely oppressive moment and to not acknowledge how oppressive that moment is that's why I really feel that I'm offering this nice solution of the painting my gynecologist's office in rural Oklahoma to me that says it all anything and actually Barbie never experiences sexism beyond just some construction Guys ogling her. And why? Because she doesn't work. She's not a lawyer Barbie or a doctor Barbie. She doesn't get sexually harassed at work or like denied promotions or talked down to by all the men. Her senior white male colleagues don't band together and try and destroy her career. And that film would be a bummer. It has this kind of really chunky two worlds logic of the ideal realm and the real realm but the real realm is also totally idealized in some fashion. So we just don't see anything about sexism at all in this Mm -hmm. film.
2: The last bit of the interview delves into Oppenheimer and how it measures up to Barbie in terms of what it has to say about the state of politics and creativity, but also some TV and other films that Megan feels are worth exploring if you want to further consider feminist ideas and issues in more comprehensive ways.
1: I think what's so interesting about a film like Oppenheimer, which I know is paired with this and sort of in a very gendered binary dynamic way, this discourse of viral marketing is even articulated along these lines. We need two films right now. We need to create a group phenomenon of putting them together because we need the women to come for Barbie and we need the men to come from Oppenheimer and we need yeah. these to be major box offices. <laughs> so here we are, we have this Barbenheimer thing. I did Barbenheimer. I saw Barbie in the afternoon and Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter after that. And right. I'm sad to find Oppenheimer so much more interesting, even though I'm not really a big Christopher Nolan fan either. He didn't over Nolan it. And mm-hmm. Oppenheimer is simply an interesting person. But the emphasis on that film of how politics actually secretly happens when we think it's not is so much more with it and au courant than Barbie. It's not trapped in 70s film theory. It's all about the way all of these worlds have to be mixed together. And you can't honor compartmentalization between the different scientific endeavors that were defining the modern era and its modes of production, that actually it's all really complex and that what makes the world new and can destroy it or repair it is demands, the penetration of worlds and the multiple different kinds of interactions of life and work and all these things. And seeing the women in that film, just even in the background, I think that film does more to talk about gender than Barbie. The guys that don't want the woman to work on the project with plutonium because she has a womb. The suffering of Oppenheimer's wife, the way that her face ages as she drinks in despair over watching what happens to him. It's a traditional film. It's a great man biopic, except for it's a great man biopic about the systematic dismantling of the great man's reputation Mm -hmm. and actually a sustained unpacking of the collaborative work that was not his, that actually involved so many different people and minds and the way that things come together through these kinds of construction of new atomic constellations. It's so much more interesting and real to politics now and the way people think about politics happening behind the scenes than something like, oh, let's tear the reality and just show the contradictions of capitalism. Like, that's what we've been doing for decades, or the contradictions of sexism. And
2: I think you've raised an interesting point, though, about Oppenheimer's wife, because she suffered on many different levels living with him yeah. and he seemed like a really difficult person and obviously he had other affairs and all these things, but in the end she was the one who was also pushing him to push back a little bit and also championing him. She yeah. emerged as a very strong character in that film.
1: She really did. Just revealing the hardship of that, really subtle. It's like two minutes of film time, but you do more nuance with those kinds of things. I'm not saying Oppenheimer is some great feminist work, but I feel like if we're going to talk about one of these films having a kind of interesting critique of gender politics and a different kind of leverage and force on some of these power structures of patriarchy those things get articulated and also the people they didn't acknowledge there's always black women and women and i think emily blunt was incredible in that film i hated liking the male auteur Mm -hmm. film about the great man so much better than barbie i was disappointed by that
2: and it's interesting to see how there are similarities with each of Film, I think, because they are a commentary. There's yeah. also a lot of close up shots of faces in both. So it's like you get a lot of close up shots of Margot Robbie and then of Oppenheimer. I just found that really interesting. But I wanted to know how you felt about there are little glimpses of that older character in the Barbie movie. And the actual creator of Barbie was the woman that was sitting on that bench with Barbie. She sees that older woman and she says, You're so beautiful. And the woman says, I know. And we looked it up afterwards because I I didn't know, but that was the actual creator.
1: I think that's interesting. It's good to know that story of Barbie. It does make me feel more sympathetic. We do what we can and we try to do more all the time. And we try to kind of keep seeing beyond what we've been able to accomplish. And and that's why the intergenerational aspect is so important to me, because I do think that that's really the missing piece in a lot of progress right now in fighting for rights over our bodies and things like that, is that I think there's a lot of distrust and hostility between older generations of women and this sense that like you didn't do enough. And then the older women are like, you don't understand what I went through. <laughs> and I think that there's some truth in both of those positions. But that's why for me, of films that and the shows that are doing really interesting stuff with this right now, that I'll take any day of the week are like Yellow Jackets, which mm-hmm. I've been obsessed with. I really think it's about just the savagery of the nineties and like diagnosing all that darkness of grunge and heroin chic and all these things. And those were dark times. It was the struggle, the violence that was required to get out of Reaganism. And I think that show is all about the transition out of Reaganism and it's just utter brutality and what people suffered. And then also the kinds of violences they undertook to survive that. And they're not only sympathetic, but at all the things that women experience in that show, like performing their own birth or trying to abort babies. We were the coat hanger generation. But there's a reason it was gruesome. And I think that show also with the actresses it casts, all the kind of iconic female actresses of the controversial films, like Christina of that era, like Christina Ricci, Lauren Ambrose and Juliette Lewis, Natural Born Killers, Mm -hmm. Buffalo 66, all this stuff. And having them in conversation with their young selves is so interesting in that show. And similar, Women Talking. We saw that film because it's called Women Talking. (laughs) (laughs) That is the film that I think Me Too needed, which is a really honest and loving and patient intergenerational dialogue about why we've made the choices we have and what we want to do next that involves listening to young people and how much they can't believe everything that we've put up with, and also old people that can talk to them with more nuance about why.
2: I would watch anything that Sarah Pauly does because I think she's incredible, but also the other person that's in that film is Frances McDormand. I don't always like the trope of the wise old woman in some of these films, yeah. I would watch Frances McDormand in anything. Totally. <laughs> like she's just incredible.
1: Jesse Buckley is absolutely incredible as this rage-filled facilitator of systemic rape. Yeah. And when she finally breaks down and they actually all talk and she explains why that's how she felt and they forgive each other. My friend and I were at that movie. I invented the phrase neck tears because I'm so and so real. But anyway, I mean, I think that doing things that don't reaffirm the boundaries between everybody, and that doesn't mean the disavowing sexual difference or racial or ethnic difference. I think we can still talk about those things and how we value them. But what are the demands that we need to carry out together? Like, what can we do? And like anything that ramifies the separations between people like you're enough. Being you is enough. Like, that's the problem for me is its individualist market-defined framework of expanding a consumer demographic that is mistaken
2: for a political one. This was just the last thing I wanted to ask. You have seen Oppenheimer. You mentioned you were enjoying Yellow Jackets. Was there anything else that you were consuming this summer, reading, watching, or or listening to that really kept you happy? Yes,
1: I have been reading a book of Michelle Serre, the philosopher who Mm -hmm. writes beautiful poetic books that are not abstractions about the body's variations on the body. This beautiful attempt to essentially write like a new ontology of like what happens if we're not afraid of the body. And that's the starting point of knowledge instead of this kind of attempt to purge knowledge of the body in Western thought historically. Variations on the body, I love it. I think anyone can read it. It's like beautiful poetic philosophy. And other than that, Elena Ferrante, I love her work. And I am writing about Maggie Gyllenhaal's adaptation of The Lost Daughter right now, La La Filia Oscura. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching that film by Maggie Gyllenhaal like on a loop. And God, what an incredible film about motherhood and the relations between women. And so I've been going back and reading the Ferrante novels and thinking about her essays on writing and gender and the limitations, and a lot of which are operative here also. And so much more interesting to me what somebody like Maggie Gyllenhaal can do. (laughs) What a brilliant first film. Just incredible. Another performance who had transitioned, an actress who became a director. Mm -hmm. Just incredible, that film. Beautiful and so nuanced and
2: uncomfortable, but great. Did you watch the adaptations of My Brilliant Friend? I
1: did, yeah. I taught a class last year about a lot of Ferrante adaptations. And those are good, too. It's interesting. They're all made by men, except for one episode by Alice Roerbacker. Most of her work has been adapted by men, and it's just oh, so interesting. interesting. I did watch also The Lying Life of Adults, which I absolutely loved. Hmm. The adaptation of Ferrante's most recent novel about a young woman coming of age in Napoli in the 90s. It's incredible. Also complex. Pictures that are not going to be made possible by Greta Gerwig's box office success right? (laughs) at the end of the day.
2: And I've taken up way too much of your time, but this seems like a good way <laughs> ending on the positive because yeah. you didn't like Barbie so much. But these are other options that if people want to read or watch, I think I'm putting a lot of these on my list for sure. I can continue to listen to you because I just think that you've opened up some new things that I hadn't even considered. And I'm very grateful for your time, though, because I know you're busy and it's the end of the summer. But thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. It was really fun to talk with you and to have an opportunity to think about this film.
2: I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my guest, Professor Andreas Hilfinger from UTM's Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences for his time and speaking so candidly about his work and his reflections of the film Oppenheimer. He saw it with a group from his lab and no doubt the discussions about the complexity of the story continued on throughout their work over the summer. I would also like to especially thank my guest, Professor Megan Sutherland from UTM's Department of Visual Studies, for her time speaking about her work and for stepping up to see both films when I approached her about my idea for having this film chat. I ended up seeing the film Barbie on August 27th, which is National Cinema Day, when you get a bit of a break on ticket prices. And as Megan mentioned, she did Barbenheimer and she saw both films the day before we chatted. So I really appreciate her making the time to see those films and she added so much more perspective to my takeaways from both. I will definitely look for the Maggie Gyllenhaal film and the Ferranti outputs that Megan mentioned to enhance my autumn viewing and reading options. In the future, I would love to conduct these types of interviews as a panel. If you are a faculty member or student at UTM, please get in touch with me. I would love to meet as many people from our campus' scholarly community as possible and think through how to highlight other people here. I am continuing on with my seventh year of podcasting at UTM and the theme for Season 9 will be Community Engaged Learning and Research, but I am hoping to come up with a catchier title. All episodes of View to View are produced, written, edited, and interviews conducted by me, Carla DeMarco, academic communications and outreach manager in the office of the dean at UTM. Some days the interviews and edits take place in the office, and other days at home over Zoom. And on a day like today, I am recording in my closet because I got kicked out of the basement. If you can take the time to rate the podcast on whatever platform you are using today, it helps others find the show and hear more from our great UTM academic community. So lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Tutone for his tracks, tunes, support, and everything. Thank you.
1: I went off today.
2: <laughs> I, <was worried>. <laughs> <laughs> no. I know, right but I, I didn't need to ask you anything.